Hello, everybody. Before we get into the podcast, I just wanted to let our listeners know that Noel and I recorded this week's podcast before news broke of the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, and so the podcast is doesn't does not touch on that and is, you know, much more lighthearted than it would have been otherwise. So if you uh, are not in the mood for, you know, our usual uh, tone and our usual fun with TV self, I'm right there with you. Um, and if you're looking for a distraction, I hope you enjoy. But um, certainly there's a lot of us having a difficult weekend and facing some scary times coming up ahead as if they weren't scary enough. Um, but I just wanted to say, uh, you know, may her memory be a blessing. And if you're scared um, and angry right now, uh, so am I. Anyways, uh, let's get to the show. Welcome to the Televerse, the podcast just for TV. Because it's great, we're lucky they make so many fine programs to see. Your host, Owen Kate, like to debate the merits of all that they've seen. Comedy, genre, reality, drama, and anything that's in between. Welcome to the Televerse, let's the show. Hello and welcome to the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsik, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. Noel, how's it going this week? I mean, I'm not in Portland. Um... But I also have not been able to leave my house for two reasons now this week, Ooh. <laughs> as opposed to just the pandemic. Um, the air quality here in Tacoma has been less than good. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, not like Portland or certain parts of California levels. Um, today's like it rained. And so the air quality is OK enough to like go outside for a little bit. But for the most part, for the past week, even including last week when we recorded, I was basically not allowed to leave my house except to real quick go outside and be there for like five minutes. Anything longer and not the best idea. So, yeah, it's been all right. I do. I do. I do also want to let you know, you and as well as our listeners, that I got a keyboard, and not like a keyboard to type on keyboard, even though that is actually going to be one of my next purchases, is I'm going to get a mechanical keyboard for myself. Um, but I got like a musical keyboard to learn how to play music on um, to like help me not play video games all day. <laughs> um, so that's very exciting and will be very difficult and frustrating for me, I'm sure. Um, because as my partner pointed out, no, you love to learn things and you love to know how to do things. You don't like the process between between. learning how to do something and doing it. You, you like learning things and you like doing things. You don't like that middle step. Mm -hmm. Um, and I had never felt more seen in my life. (laughs) Well, hey, you know what? It could be a violin. That would be so much harder. Just think about it that way. Every time you're getting frustrated, you'd be like, well, at least my hands are in a reasonable position. Yeah, no, it's true. It's like it's my partner offered to teach me the guitar because she knows how to play the guitar. And I went, no, no, thank you. I've seen people try to learn 
that F chord, whichever <laughs> one it is that just forces your fingers into a completely unnatural position. No, no, thank you. 61 keys. That's enough. That's enough for me to figure out right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm very excited about your keyboard. Uh, listeners, this has been in the works for a while and I've been very much anticipating it and looking forward to it. So I'm very excited for, you know, whatever developments that, that come. Um, and just, if you, if you want any pointers, reach out. I have a very limited experience on teaching piano, but I have taught piano and I did study piano for 12 years as a kid. So I've got a background there. I was actually going to ask you for some like recommendations, but we can discuss that off mic. Um, I do want you to send me like the music for the Televerse intro music, however, because clearly that's the first thing I need to learn how to play. (laughs) Well, the trouble is, is that I tried to do it in a certain key and then Uh realized I couldn't sing it in tune when I did it. Mm -hmm. So I just tuned down my violin to match my out of tune (laughs) singing. So it won't actually match your keyboard, but I can get you close and get you close. (laughs) All right. <laughs> That's hilarious. How are you this week? How how things have been in Chicago this week? Yeah, things are. I mean, it is what in it the is, right? Kulzik bunker. In the Kulzik bunker, things things have been pretty good. You can't complain, right? That's where we're at. Can't complain. It could be way, way, way worse. And uh, right now, everybody's doing well, so we're going to hold on to that. Um, it's uh, it's the start of the school year, so I'm getting used to a, back to a different teaching schedule than I've had mm-hmm. all summer and most of quarantine. Because when my students had school in like March, April, May, their schedule was very different than it is now because they're like yeah. really doing it. So everybody, so I could have like some lessons in the morning and something like, and it was a much more normal people's working schedule kind of schedule. And so I'm back to only afternoons and evenings. And then I have like my mornings are just like open. So I'm sleeping because I'm staying up way too late because I'm working later, of course, naturally. But I can like get up and then like work out a little bit and like make an actual like breakfast and and catch up on some other work and stuff like that before then, you know, we record and then I teach all night and then I stay up too late editing the podcast. Right. So like it's it's been getting used to and adjusting to that schedule. And the fact that we took the first half of the week off of uh, streaming in place really helps with that. So the transition. So I feel like I'm now pretty comfortably transitioned to my new school year schedule. Um, so that 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 helps. But uh I feel like it, it was just very strange not talking to you and Allison for the first half of the week. So it uh, was. It was very yeah. weird. Yeah. Well, I'm sure listeners were like, "Oh, thank goodness they're not bombing my feed anymore every day." No, we still are. Just you know, not this week. Anyways, um, yeah, it's been interesting. The, this week we're going to be talking about at the end of the show, Julian the Phantoms, which is a Netflix uh, musical comedy. Yes, I'm going to go with musical comedy. Uh, And it's an adaptation of a, a, I think, a Brazilian show? Brazilian, yes. Yes. Uh, And so it's an easy watch, nine episodes, each about a half an hour. Very high school musical, I say, without having seen the high school musical. Um, But that is is pretty fun. We'll be talking about that at the end of the show. Uh, But we have some TV news uh, we should dive in with here. The, the big thing that's getting all the coverage right now is the fact that the Emmys are this weekend, but but we don't really care. Um, no. At least I don't Even really care. I'm probably going to watch some of it. Yeah. It's like curiosity. Um, just to see what they're going to do. But mm-hmm. I mean, I also watched almost the entirety of the Dancing with the Stars premiere. More on that in a second. So clearly 
I'm starved for television content. <laughs> yeah, it's weird watching things roll out again. Like, we have premieres again. It's weird. Yeah. We've got several premieres this week. And um, so in looking ahead into, you know, the coming weeks, we're going to have more shows coming back or dropping for the first time. Um, so it's going to be, it just, it feels kind of strange. I expected our, the 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 biggest part of the coronavirus dip to last a lot longer than it seems like, at least for now, it, it is. Um, and I don't, I wonder if that is sustainable. And I kind of doubt that it is. So we'll, more on that later. Um, yeah, we can talk about that in just a second, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but, but, but yeah, that's, that's not the news we're going to talk about. Um, we'll talk about the Emmys if something happens interesting. We'll talk about that next week. Um, uh, there was some really unfortunate, horrifying news that broke this, this uh, week that is TV related, which is, you know, we talked about Cheer, which is a Netflix show um, at the start of the year. And one of the the people who was uh, featured in that docu series uh, was Jerry Harris, and he was arrested for child pornography charges, uh, pr- pr- not just ownership of production of child pornography. And it's a really horrible story. And um, for, we're not going to go into it here, but just to say that you know, just what you see in a documentary is not necessarily who that person is. And just because someone is the most charming and charismatic and seemingly kind-hearted person in a show or in your life does not mean you are seeing every part of who that person is and what they are capable of. So, yeah, Jerry seemed like the heart of that show and just such a, a great, wonderful person. And that charisma is part of what helped him uh, be able to allegedly commit these really mm-hmm. horrifying crimes. So uh, yeah, our, our thoughts are with all of the people who have, you know, been forced to deal with his abuse and, uh, and survive through it and, and who are, will hope will hopefully get the help that they need. Um, yeah. It's really, it, again, it's always very sobering, right? It's like, Oh, you never, it's always people you don't expect. Well, you, cause you don't, you know, if you suspect them, then it's a lot harder for people who are, who are, you know, perpetrators to entrap people and to, to, to lure them in. So it's a, you know, there's a, there's a reason that, oh, it could, you would never have thought type people, you know, are yeah. not just because someone seems kind, seems charming and fun does not mean that they do not have that kind of darkness within them. Um, they're not capable of really hurting a lot of people. So that is something we feel like we should mention here at the top of the show. And for those, you know, who are, Want more information? You can you can seek that out. There's been a lot of coverage of it um, elsewhere in very different TV news. We had our latest. Uh, it's renewed. Oh, it's canceled. Um, which in this case, pouring out for Latoya, Stumptown. Stumptown has been has been Corona canceled. Um, which I feel like that's got to be like the new thing, right? This has happened a bunch, and it's not. Is do we think this is actually because of coronavirus, or just because it just gives them a chance to cancel shows that they were not sure about in the first place? So Stumptown, I think, is in a weird position in, and I think the the Hollywood Reporter piece that kind of went into this is that Stumptown was in kind of a precarious position anyway prior to the pandemic happening. 
So as I think we discussed towards the end of season one or after the renewal, they changed showrunners uh, to go into like a new creative direction. Apparently ABC executives were keen on the new creative direction. So there were like creative, there was creative issues between the show and the studio or the network. Um, I forget which, I think the network um, in terms of Stumptown's new direction. Um, the other thing is that the show is just apparently pretty expensive to produce, even though it's produced by ABC Signature, which is a studio within the ABC um, portfolio. So it's owned and operated by ABC. The pandemic just presented another like th- straw that broke the camel's back, probably, because the show wasn't going to be able to get up and running in time to have episodes ready to go for any sort of premiere in the fall. Um, like, episodes probably weren't going to air for Stumptown until maybe March or April, based on the, their current schedule, which is not great. Yeah. Um, and so th- all of those forces combined, basically, I think kind of led to the cancellation. And a- ABC Signature is shopping the show around. But when you're production studio goes this show's kind of expensive (laughs) and we own it it doesn't instill confidence that someone else is going to buy it um, Mm -hmm. and provide a licensing fee and help produce it it just doesn't seem likely so it's it's disappointing to see because you and i both really enjoyed stumptown there's lots of really good elements in it that within a season two probably could have really solidified into something truly and utterly delightful um but everything just kind of ended up conspiring against it so i think in stumptown's case the pandemic just provided a reason to cancel it um as opposed to trying to suss out like the creative issues um so that's what i think happened here i think in other instances including like our beloved i'm sorry which was also canceled um due to the pandemic and everything and not being able to get off the ground um that was more so just we have really narrow margins and if we don't have the show we can't do the show so we're just going to cancel it and plus everything over in that portfolio because true tv is owned by now um warner media so and they're just shaking up everything over there that it just kind of it just made sense um even though i think i'm sorry would have just killed on hbo max like people would have actually been able to find it and watch it and enjoy it on hbo max so i think that was a mistake but that's the issue here is like there's a lot of things that i think we're going to start seeing shake out um the one other thing i'll add is that joseph adelaine over at vulture his newsletter um, had a really good rundown of what TV is probably going to look like over the next couple of months, especially broadcast TV specifically, um, in terms of reality TV and game shows are still going to be on TV, on broadcast networks probably through October. Um, mm-hmm. We'll get maybe a handful of new episodes before the broadcast networks shift into holiday mode and also have to deal with the election. Um, so there's a lot of like moving parts there. So it's likely that we'll get a handful of episodes from places, um, certain shows, depending, um, prior to the holidays. But then after that, it's sort of a question mark, um, because no one, no one knows how the winter is going to shake out for any of us, uh, let alone television production in Los Angeles or New York. Yeah, it will. 
be very interesting to to see. You know, we have our we have our thoughts here at the podcast, our, yeah. our expectations, but um, yep, there's a yeah yeah. I want to have these shows back, but more than yes. that, I want people to not get sick. And so. yeah, yeah, and it's what it's more compelling than anything. And we sort of discussed this when they announced it, is CW's decision just to punt their season to the beginning of 2021, yeah. uh, which was arguably the most responsible decision, but the CW also has that agility because they have a slightly different sort of broadcast model. And so far as they don't have like local news affiliates or late night shows that kind of rely on them Mm -hmm. in the same way that NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox rely on local news and that kind of a thing, or are responsible for local news in certain ways to help keep those affiliates afloat. CW doesn't have that, so they have that flexibility. Um, but also, I'm like, Black Lightning, Dynasty, All-American, um, and one other show basically can't shoot because they're in Atlanta, and Atlanta is a hellscape. And I say this as someone from Georgia and who lived not far from and then lived in Atlanta. You, you can't shoot a television show in, Atlanta, in Georgia right now. Like, it's not a yeah. good idea. It's not safe. Um, so Vancouver is, I think, reasonably okay. So maybe mm-hmm. we'll get a bunch of superhero shows. Um, but I don't know that we're going to get any of the Atlanta shows uh, just because it's not, it doesn't feel safe. And I agree with you, like, there shouldn't be these shows because I'd rather everyone that works on a show be safe and healthy rather than trying to churn out something to feed a machine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, while we got sad news this week about Stumptown, um, we got positive news over at uh, HBO Max because Harley Quinn has officially been renewed for season three. We were expecting it, but it still feels sweet. <laughs> still really glad to hear it. Um, the official confirmation come in as long as it doesn't get coroned. Um, I don't anticipate that, though. I'm feeling pretty good about this one. There was also news about DC Universe now going, like, all the DC Universe shows are going to HBO Max, and DC Universe is going to be just for digital distribution of comics, is my understanding. Yeah, that makes sense. Um that's what they should have done in the first place, but whatever. Yeah. Um, it, but. it may have taken a while, but that's where we are now. So, yay, everyone get ready to, for another season of shipping in 2021. Yeah, I mean, getting Harley Quinn back on for third season, I think is great. I'm very excited. Um, I'm, But I'm also really excited about the DC Universe content coming over to HBO Max. Because that means that there's a treasure trove of... DC really affiliated stuff that's going to be available, including, and I'm pretty sure it was on there, like Batman the Animated Series is going to be streaming on HBO Max, presumably. Ooh. I think it was on Universe. Yes, exactly. Listeners, Kate just did an ooh face. I mean, I've got the Blu-rays, so I'm set. Like, mm-hmm. I've got actually two sets of the Blu-rays because I accidentally ordered two, but only paid for one somehow. Um, so if you want that other set, let me know and I will mail it to you. Remember, I don't um, have a I don't have a Blu-ray player. You don't player. have a Blu-ray player. I found right. it after I bought Avatar on Blu-ray. <laughs> right. That's right. I forgot. Yep. Um, yep. Salt so, wound rub. Salt wound. Sorry. Um, well, then just get a Blu-ray player and yeah. then I'll... Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, but there's a whole bunch of good stuff on DC Universe from like the archive that 
hopefully will like filter onto HBO Max, and I think that's really exciting and really good news. Um, just from a tel- TV history and particularly a TV animation history perspective, that stuff being available, I think, will be really, really great. Um, but this also means that we can get around to Young Justice. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Um, our last bit of TV news here is that Tatiana Maslany has been cast as She-Hulk in the Disney Plus show, uh, which is very exciting for fans of Maslany. And obviously, you know, she's a very talented actor. I have no doubt that she will be excellent in the role. Uh, I don't know enough about She-Hulk. To, you know, because I haven't read any of the comics. I just know that people really like, they really like She-Hulk as one of the, like, the better written um, superhero characters of the past, like, what, 20 years? Um, mm-hmm. One of the more inventive and uh, refreshing uh, takes on a familiar property, the familiar property being Hulk. Um, do you have a stronger connection to this? Um, so I'm more familiar with She-Hulk in her kind of contemporary when, um, Charles Soule took over writing her book. Um, and it was really good. Um, and she, she Hulk figured pretty prominently into a lot of storylines, um, going forward. She was the leader of the A-Force, which was an all-female, uh, team of Marvel superheroes during a big crossover event. Um, that book was solid. Um, but the character has like dipped in and out of a bunch of different sort of um, iterations, including like a very sort of fourth wall breaking kind of thing, not to like Deadpool extent, but there's elements of that within her books um, in the eighties or nineties. Um, and I've read some of those and those were pretty good. Um, but I really like she Hulk as well. Like the character is really great. Um, for those who aren't aware, um, she Hulk has not like the same amount of strength and everything as the Hulk, but is as is still plenty, plenty strong, but she's able to retain her, um, intellect and personality, um, more so than the Hulk typically does. Um, in most of his iterations, barring say certain reinterpretations or certain versions of the characters that of the Hulk that have happened over the years. So, I'm excited about Miss catch casting. I think it'll be really interesting. Um, but I'm also really curious about like what the sh- tone of this show is going to be. And also what the mocap for She-Hulk is going to look like as well. Um, because Miss not like anywhere near large enough to just be green body painted yeah. um, as She-Hulk. Um, and that's, so I'm really curious about what the mocap looks like and the degrees to which that they're going to really work with that with her. Uh, because that's going to that's gonna play a big part. Um, I really hope that she's still a lawyer, um, which is uh, what Jennifer does in the comics. Um, that feels like an essential part of the comic. Like, I don't know anything about the character, but I know that she's a lawyer. Yeah, no, it's super essential. Like, it's really, really important. In fact, like, one of her law firms just kind of helps superheroes, <laughs> um, which is really delightful. So I think that there's a lot of really good stuff that they can play with. I'm just really curious about the tone of what this show is going to be, uh, which based on the people behind it, which include, I think, uh, two of the Rick and Morty writers, we're probably going to get a more comedic type show, which I think is great for the, that character and great for Mislani. So hopefully that's the vein that they're going to go for. And, you know, if we can get Charlie Cox to come back and daredevil it up a little bit in a crossover, I'm okay with that too. 
I'm very here for that. Very That's here. not going to happen, but I, no, I want not. to. Yeah. But if we if we all wish hard enough, it still yeah. won't happen. But no. it'll be fun. If if I brainwash Kevin Feig, maybe we can make <laughs> it happen. <laughs> okay. Okay. So goals without leaving your house or breathing yes. the air. Okay. Yeah. As long as we're clear on that. Um, so that wraps up our news. Uh, we're going to take a break. This week in TV, we are just trading off because we watched a bunch of stuff, just not the same stuff. Nope. Um, so so it'll be an interesting podcast this week, but I'm looking forward to the conversation. Uh, let's take a break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with our Week in TV. This week in TV, I'm going to kick things off with just a few thoughts about the return of Archer for season 11, the Orpheus Gambit and Blood Sploosh. Then Noel checked in with Dancing with the Stars, season 29, episode one, week one, first dances. Then I will have just a few thoughts about RuPaul's Drag Race Vegas Review. Uh, this past week's episode is Love is in the Air, and then the episode that will have aired by the time you all hear this is, um, is Family Affair which is the penultimate episode of Vegas Review. Then Noel caught up with The Great Pottery Throwdown, at least the first couple episodes. Three seasons dropped uh, this week on HBO Max. I've seen half an episode, so mostly that's all going to be Noel. And then Noel also checked out The Third Day on HBO, its season premiere. I have a couple thoughts on Departure, which is a new Peacock show. It's actually not a Peacock show, but they have the rights to it. It's a it's a UK show, um, Canadian and UK show. Um, so that, you know, I'll have a few thoughts on departure. And then Noel's going to round things out with Lovecraft Country's Strange Case. So first up is Archer, the Orpheus Gambit, and Blood Sploosh. So the reason I wanted to mention this, because it's, it's very boilerplate Archer. I don't have a lot to say about it. Um, you know, it's our similar statements to what we've been saying over the last couple seasons, which is these are very funny people. It feels a little tired, but if, you know, it's it's not the show operating at its peak, but if you really enjoy these characters, if you enjoy the the personalities and, and the animation and the world, have fun, enjoy. Um, the thing that makes this stand out is that they have decided to wake Archer up from his coma and return him to the actual world instead of continuing these like season long um, coma genre exercises. So uh, having Archer awaken three years later to find Lana married to Stephen Tobolowsky uh, and... Uh, what? <laughs> yes. Okay. That's well, the like that... the actual actor, Stephen Tobolowsky? No, no, no. Or... Okay. Because <laughs> that would be amazing and I would immediately watch that. No, a, like a, a bajillionaire uh, doctor, I think. Okay. <laughs> um, who, I think he's a doctor or uh, something with art. I don't remember. 
Um, she met him at the hospital. Um, and uh, anyway, so so that is one fun thing. They there's absolutely zero mention of their child, which is a little strange, but okay. Um, and but also uh, the team is working seamlessly. Uh, uh, Cyril is is ripped and has Archer's parking space. They're back to doing spy stuff. Don't, you know, don't overthink it. Um, like there's, there's some good and highly entertaining, um, fish out of water dynamics or Archer having to learn to take a back seat. He has, uh, limited mobility. So he has a cane that he's using, which of course gets tricked up at Krieger. Um, there's, so like, there's some awareness of, you know, his situation, certainly with the interpersonal dynamics, um, you know, the fact that he's been in a coma for three years is a big part of, you know, what they're all dealing with. But uh, it, it's a lot of the same energy and dynamics that you would expect from Archer. Uh, new Cheryl, new better Cheryl is uh, off of drugs and alcohol and actually typing and such. Um, so you can take your guess as to how long some of these dynamics will maintain now that Archer's back in the mix. Um, but there, there's some good stuff here that, you know, in a time when there's not a lot of returning episodes of your favorites, this will have more appeal. But if you aren't excited about Archer to begin with, I think you, you know, I would say you don't necessarily need to tune in. If you're like, oh, sweet new Archer, then you will enjoy, you'll have fun. And certainly I think it was a good call to have them go back to the original cast of characters, um, because it was feeling a bit diminishing returns, after that first, um, the the noir season, which I thought was actually really strong, um, then it just was sort of diminishing returns since then. So I'm glad to see them get to that back, back to that main narrative uh, for their characters. And I, we'll see if I keep watching. I probably won't. I'll probably let it pile up and then marathon at some point while I'm, you know, doing invoices or something. But, um, but yeah, we'll see. Yeah, you know, I had fun. I, I had enough fun. Um, did you have enough fun with Dancing with the Stars? Week one, first dances? So I tuned into this because for a number of reasons. Uh, the first being, hey, Tom Bergeron isn't on the show anymore. Let's see what's going on with Tyra Banks. And then the other reason I tuned, I, then I tuned in because they were doing it without an audience and scaled back for to keep everyone safe. Um, during the pandemic because they're still shooting in Los Angeles. And then the third reason I tuned in was Justina Machado is a contestant this season. And it's just like, why are you making me watch this? (laughs) Um, Dancing with the Stars, it's just mean. It's just mean. I have no interest in this. I'm just watching for Justina. You better do right by her. Right, exactly. So, um... It's still Dancing with the Stars. I saw a bunch of like articles written up about how Tyra Banks made the show about her, which never happened. Like she comes out in this very like elaborate big like ball gown sort of thing that's very pretty and very gorgeous and then immediately like takes it off and goes into something a little more like trimmed down and not as like eye-catching. It's just a MC announced type of thing that then immediately fades out. And a lot of people felt like she was just making it all about her. And I just went, no, it's, it's fine for as scaled down as the show now has to be. Cause there's no big group dancing. There's no, there's no band. There's no like dancing choreography extras, um, which normally help aliven the show in those ways. 
a little bit of spectacle from your new host makes sense. And I think it works. And then she just kind of scales back into a host mode. Um, she asks really standard questions about people's reactions to things. Like, none of it feels all that different from normal Dancing with the Stars. So Tyra's good, I think. Um, the rest of the COVID-related production issues, I think, generally work in the show's favor. Um, the judges are, like, nine feet apart from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, which, for Derek Huff, who takes over for Len Goodman, because Len couldn't come back from the UK for obvious reasons, um, is between Carrie Ann and Bruno. And Bruno, if you've watched the show before, you know gesticulates very wildly. And so now he has all of this space to spread out, which is great because Derek Huff would just get, keep getting an arm in his face. Um, so I think that the, all of that just generally works well. Um, what is really weird, both in a production standpoint, and, but also in like a televisual perspective, is there's no audience, right? Um, but the show pipes in audience noises, so applause and oohs and ahs and that kind of thing. But they so also weird. pipe in they also but they also pipe in boos for whenever the judges deliver like a critique of something. <laughs> okay, that's hilarious. See, that's the thing, is it's all really weird, but it's also all really kind of funny, is the thing. Like when the boos came in, the judges immediately like turned around to wonder where the fuck it was coming from. <laughs> That's so funny. Be- and so, and like real serious kudos to their sound team because they're deploying all of that exactly right and at the right levels with the choosing the right sounds. Um, because I've watched enough Dancing with the Stars to know when an audience reacts to a certain thing, the noise that they typically make. And after 29 cycles of the show, so does the show. So it actually creates this uncanny valley effect of there's no audience, but it feels like there's an audience because of how well they're piping in this audience noises. So I think all of that works really well. It feels weird, but it still ends up working okay. Um, as for the actual dancing, I'm not a a good person to evaluate things. So the only thing I will say is that Justina has the best time of anyone I watched and she's tied for first place as of right now. Um, Mm -hmm. Sakai, um, what's her last name? Sakai Jackson, who, uh, has worked on the Disney channel a lot. Um, because there's always one Disney Channel character, uh, character, one Disney Channel actor on Dancing with the Stars per cycle. It's just contractually required. <laughs> um, but Justina Machado has the best time. She's just infectious. She's just, she's so happy and just on and performing and giving a terrific, terrific performance. Um, technically, I can't judge it. But you know what? She was having, again, like I said, the most fun of anyone that performed. Um, She was just really in it. So I'm probably not going to watch anymore. (laughs) Because the episode, I forgot how long the episodes are, Kate. They're very long. They're so long. The premiere is 90 minutes with barely any, with like limited commercial breaks. uh, Because I watched it on on demand. Um, And it's just like, it's so long. 
And there's so many dancers. Um, there's just, so many. Just go, just go to YouTube and search up the Machado dances. Yeah, no, that's probably what I'm going to do because she's just really great um, on it. And I really enjoyed it. So it's still Dancing with the Stars. Um, and it still feels like a pretty solid like version of itself, despite the COVID changes and the host changes. So I think it's if you like Dancing with the Stars, it's still something totally to check out. Um, so, yeah, no. Go watch it if you want to, but there's no reason to watch it if you don't, if you know that Dancing with the Stars is not a show for you. Okay. Well, I'm, I am intrigued, certainly, um, much more than I was. So we'll see. Watch a little bit of it just to get a sense of how weird it is and then turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> um, next up is RuPaul's Drag Race Vegas Review, which I haven't checked in on for a while. Uh, love, previous episodes of Love is in the Air, and this week's episode, um, as the, by the time you guys hear this, is Family Affair. And Love is in the Air is definitely the strongest episode. I haven't seen the finale yet, but it's the strongest episode of the rest of them. And it's because it centers very much on two threads, which are uh, Cameron's not boyfriend comes to town uh, to break up with her. <laughs> and yay, because uh, he doesn't want to do long distance uh, anymore. And it's, you know, it's been rough. So, you know, he wasn't comfortable with them, you know, using labels or being boyfriends. Um and so it's not all that surprising that he has come to town to break up in person because uh, he he doesn't want to do long distance anymore. Uh, but Cameron is so excited. Now, the, I perhaps not giving these performers enough credit. Uh, obviously, this is staged because it happens at the top of the Eiffel Tower at the Paris Casino in Vegas. So, like, that's not a coincidence. But I don't know. Like, so... I think it's very obvious that the producers knew that he was going to come there to break up, but I don't know that Cameron knew that um, because if so, Cameron's a really, really good actor. Uh, and I don't know that the, like these are performers who do a lot of things, but very subtle and relatable nuanced acting is usually not one of the things that they do. Um, so, cause, cause Cameron is just like beaming like glowing practically so excited that Andre's in town and talking about their relationship and stuff. And then, uh, really not when, when they get done. So, um, uh, because of that, it's, it feels very, it's very relatable. So like, and they, they're handling, it's a very mature reason to break up and it's done respectfully. And Cameron takes it about as well as she could, you know, like I get it, but it sucks and all these different things. Um, so, it's just very real drama with that obvious layer of artifice and manufactured uh, reality that goes with any of these reality shows and these docu-soaps. Um, and the other main thread is the Asia and Naomi, Naomi and Derek drama from the previous episode, which I think is handled really well, um, at least initially. The, the, the previously on tries to get you to forget that um, the fallout stems from a bunch of chicanery and ridiculousness from Derek and also Naomi, Naomi, um, and they do try to like paint it as an as an Asia overreacting situation, which is not what happened. Um, d- maybe they forgot that we watched the previous episodes, but who knows? Um, but the actual like watching Asia deal with and talk about 
how difficult it is for her to trust people and that she's got a really strained relationship with her family. And so her friends have always been more important to her and like these different things and how that connects with what we're seeing like in the previous episodes, I think is, again, it feels very authentic and, you know, it's, you know, not everybody is acting the most mature that they could, but it's all very understandable and it all feels relatable. So as you're, you know, it, it doesn't feel like one side is laughably over the top. Like, like Naomi doesn't get it, but she's also not trying all that hard to get it. And Asia uh, is reacting in a big way, um, is reacting in what for some of the other queens would be overreacting, but it comes from somewhere and that's very clear. So while she is not the most mature in some of her responses, it's because she was very, very much hurt. And the people who hurt her were not responsible, were not mature in the way they hurt her. So it's like, what do you expect? You know? Um, So because of that, there's enough um, shading to the situation to make it feel again, feel more genuine as compared to the really uh, uh, just very produced drama of, Oh, here, Derek's boyfriend's going to show up and pick a fight with Naomi and they're going to talk about, well, um, you two years ago at a show said this thing about my fans. And and then when you were on Drag Race, you did a bad job on Snatch Game. And it's, it just it was so phony. So this is just much more compelling. Um, the the follow up uh, for Family Affair is the, like so the previous episode Love is in the Air builds this momentum really effectively. But then um, that kind of deflates a bit in, in Family Affair because they're waiting for the finale to have the resolution to the Asia and Naomi drama, which is unfortunate. Um, but what we do get in this episode instead is we get to see we get to meet Mama Vanjie, um, Vanjie's mom, Annabelle, who is lovely and delightful. And immediately you're like, yep, I get it. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> that tracks. Yep. You seem fabulous um and then also uh cameron and deciding to ask out um vanjie and just sort of like taking a look at you know and and i think a lot of people can relate to that idea of somebody you've known for or worked with for a long time um but seeing them in a new context for some reason and then thinking oh well why didn't we ever hang out or see if there was something there maybe that Okay, you know, because I wasn't thinking in that context, but maybe that would actually be, sounds like we're looking for the same things. Um, So that's actually, I think, handled pretty well in this episode. And again, either it's genuine or Cameron's a really good actor, (laughs) a really good actor, Um, because like there's just like this like sort of giddiness that goes with that feels very genuine with when you realize you like someone and um, what, you know, is going with that and how that. How, how that manifests itself um, when Cameron tells uh, Derek and Naomi about it uh, and is like, what, what do you think? They're, you could tell they're, they're literally stunned into silence. So the fact that Derek Barry is stunned into silence tells you something. <laughs> yeah, um, no kidding. But um, because you can tell they're both like, we already have all this drama in our workplace with Asia and, and Naomi and Derek. Don't, what are you going to do to us? Come on. We still are working together for X number of months. Um, but then, you know, Derek loves love. Uh, 
So Derek gets on board. <laughs> and Naomi's like, okay, you do you. Good luck. This is not what I would want. I would never want to date a coworker, but hey, other people are different. Um, so, so I, you know, there's, there's some fun there. Um, and they're just, they're, it's just the, the cutest thing because when Cameron, after silliness, when Cameron goes over to talk to, to Vanjie, you could tell again, either genuine or Vanjie's a really good actor, uh, that Vanjie is completely shocked and just very much, and there's, a, just a very strong of like I just would never have thought that you would be interested in me because they've worked together a bunch or we touring around the world and stuff um, like all these queens have and and it's just really they're both so awkward but in a really charming very relatable kind of way where you can read in between what they're not saying and it's it's just very relatable um, so again either scripted and they're very good actors um or at least partially genuine and very relatable so um this episode wasn't quite as strong as last week's episode but with and there's a bunch of threads that they introduced at the start of the season which was a month ago and that now it seems like are not going to be addressed at all by the finale which is like why did you bring up Derek's relationship with his mother and him reaching out to her if they weren't going to talk and like reconcile or at least have a conversation before the end of the season. Why would you bring up Evie needing to go to the doctor twice? If you weren't going to have Evie at least schedule an appointment to go to the doctor by the finale. And maybe all those things will happen in the finale, but it just seems like there's way too much for them to do in this last episode. If they actually are going to like touch on the points that were like the, the teases at the beginning of the season in the next episode, I expected instead to just center on the Asia and Naomi and Derek kerfuffle and issues. And then this Cameron and, and Vanjie relationship. And then of course the show gets shut down for coronavirus. So it's a lot, it's a lot for one episode and these have not been particularly stuffed episodes. Um, so if they, if they stick the landing on like two of these two or three storylines, I think it'll be a really strong, like last chunk of the season. Um, Cause I mean, you have a show, a docu-series following performers when a pandemic hits and all live performance gets shut down. That's huge. Like that entire crew, their livelihood is just gone now for who knows how long that's some real life stakes um, to, to be, capturing and like the what's happening in that moment so if they can do any sort of justice to that that experience that very disorienting experience of you know vegas shutting down um while managing these two storylines i've been focusing on the last two episodes i think it'll be a, a strong finale so i'm hopeful but i'm not as excited as i was after the previous episode because now I'm like, I, I'm a little more skeptical. I was like, after the last episode, I, I previous episode was like, okay, and they've got two episodes left. Oh, great. That's enough time for them to wrap up Asia and and everything going on with Naomi in the next episode. And then we can touch back in on all those things from the beginning of the season in the finale. Oh, you're not going to do that. Oh, you're just, you didn't know where the season would end when you were putting together the first episode. There's only six episodes. Come on, guys. Um, so that's where I'm at with this. 
and we'll see if I have any thoughts to share next week after the finale. But uh, I'm going to throw it back to you because well, ha, ha, I'm going to throw it back to you because nice. you watched a couple episodes of The Great Pottery Throwdown, which is now available on HBO Max. Um, like I said, I watched about half an episode of this. And my main takeaway so far is that so reminiscent of Skin Wars, a bunch of people are very excited to talk about how sexual their art is. Uh, just the craft, like the physicality of their art, as opposed to what inspiring them um mm-hmm. and pretending like those are different things um so what what did you think of the great pottery throwdown the first episode gets all the sex stuff out of the way and there's almost none of it in the se- in the second episode okay. you'll be relieved to know uh but yes there's a lot of kind of raunchy innuendo in the first episode as opposed to um, cheeky innuendo cuz i love a cheeky innuendo a pun i mean clearly i've watched a lot of bake off yeah, it doesn't feel as cheeky as Bake Off in that yeah. regard. Um, it's a little more explicit. Um, it's hard not to be. <laughs> but yeah, so it just is what it is. But it feels like they get it like out of their system in the um, in the first episode. So for those who may not be aware, um, Great Pottery Throwdowns from the same production studio, Love Productions, that handles Great British Bake Off. Um, pottery Throwdown originally aired on BBC for two seasons um, in 2015 and 2017. And then BBC went, we don't want any more of it in 2018. And Love Productions shifted it over to Channel 4. Channel 4 is more for um, for the 2020 season, um, which premieres premiered today, uh, yesterday, I think. Um HBO Max has the rights to all three seasons, so it'll be airing, I presume, new episodes or all the episodes. Nope, all the episodes for, I think, season one are available already. Uh, Season three are available already. So plenty of stuff. Um, I like this um, pretty well based on the two episodes I've watched. Um, For me, it kind of splits the difference between Blown Away, which you watched last, uh, last week and we discussed a little bit, and Bake Off. Um, it It's not as like high stress as, um, whatchamacallit, as Blown Away can be because of the glass blowing, but also because of how the show really plays up the anything can happen because it's glass mm-hmm. type of nature of the show. Also with Blown Away, you have like professionals or semi-professionals competing against one another, which creates all sorts of levels of ego and nonsense and stuff that happens within Blown Away, uh, which can be not the best thing for the show. Pottery Throwdown has, like, home potters competing, just like Bake Off has home bakers competing. So these aren't, like, professional potters, even though one of them's, like, a ceramics teacher at a high school. But for the most part, these are folks who don't do this, like, professionally. Um, So that lowers the sense of stakes and lowers the egos um, significantly, which I find really good. But it also isn't as stressful as Blown Away, even though it has the same degree of, well, the pots are going to do what the pots are going to do when we put them to dry or when we put them in the kiln, because maybe we didn't work the clay the correct way or our, our glaze or the thing, the, the oxides that we use didn't do what we thought they were going to do, et cetera, et cetera. 
because we kind of screwed up, but also you just don't know what's going to happen inside the kiln. Um, so there's that degree of the same thing of like what happens in the oven. We just, it's all really good paralleling. Um, even down to like the structure of the episodes is very bake off. They have like a main thing that they do for the primary challenge for the episode, but that can take anywhere between four days and seven days. Mm -hmm. Um, since in the first one, they make a set of five nested bowls in season one. Um, and then in the second episode, they make a sink basically (laughs) of like a basin bowl for the sink. Um, and that takes seven days to do between needing to let it dry, sculpting it some more, letting it dry again, decorating it, putting it in the kiln. Like this all takes like 24 hours between things. So there's a lot of like downtime quote around each episode, which means that they have room for a blind technical which normally involves doing something really kind of small. The first one um, in episode one involves putting handles on two different styles of cups. Uh, one cup is a contemporary, one's a classical, and your handle has to be uniform and match the style of the cup. Um, in the second one with the basin, they have to do nine tiles that they can design any way they want, but there needs to be a uniformity to the theme and concept of the tile design. Um And then they just have a speed challenge before they present and finish up their final big main make type thing that is something really ridiculous and silly and just feels like a way for everyone to kind of blow off steam a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, So in the first one, they have to make as many egg cups as possible, basically. (laughs) Um, The second episode has them building the tallest possible vase with a blindfold on. Um... (laughs) it's really fun i really like the speed challenges basically and they only have like between 10 and 20 minutes for any of this uh Mm -hmm. so it's actually really neat um my favorite thing i think i like about this the most though is the judging um the judges in the first two seasons are uh kate malone and keith brimer jones uh malone leaves in season three um but kate malone is more of like a ceramics artist Um, Her stuff appears in museums and at, like, galleries and that kind of thing. Uh, Whereas Jones is more of a practical ceramics maker and potter. His stuff gets, like, designed and sold in, like, stores and for restaurants and that kind of a thing. So they both have, like, the same sort of, same sort of, like, conception of what looks, what is good pottery. But they have, like, very different sort of aesthetics tastes of, well, no, that sink isn't really practical as a sink, but it looks good. But it's it, it's not a sink. Um, <laughs> uh, from a practical standpoint, this would be horrible to wash your hands in. Um, so I think that there's really good sort of like the different approaches and perspectives that they have allows for a more nuanced discussion about what pottery and ceramics are, which I think is a really neat thing to bring into the show. So on the whole, I really like this. Um, it's not as relaxing as Bake Off. But it's still pretty good, and it's still pretty fun. Um, So I think that if you're looking for a bake-off itch, even though that's about to be scratched because the new season is about to drop, or start dropping, um, this is still a good thing to like tide you over between episodes, I think. Um, So I'd encourage you, if you have HBO Max, to seek it out, um, and just like 
watch a couple episodes a day or a couple episodes a week and kind of revel in the slowness of pottery. <laughs> That's fun. Um, yeah, I'm intrigued. I'll probably watch more of it um, because, you know me, I love my reality. Um so yeah, I'm, that's, I'm, I didn't get far enough in to see any judging, so yeah. or, or the other kinds of challenges. So that yeah, consider me teased. I will probably watch more. One of the other things I really like is that Jones gets very emotional about ceramics, so much so that he cries or almost cries in both of the episodes I watched. Um, in the first instance, it's because a very nervous contestant did a very good job. And once she presented her bowls, she was just so relieved. And he started crying because of how relieved she was. And then there was just something else in the sink basin one that kind of like made him kind of tear up. I really like that from like an emotionality level of he's really, he really, really cares about this, both as like a profession, because he's also kind of brutal in a lot of his judging. But it also, like, means so much to him to see these people doing this work and doing good work that he gets moved to tears, which is so great and lovely to watch, especially, I think, to all the other kinds of reality show judgings on these, but also specifically Paul Hollywood, who refuses to emote. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and that you can you you can be emotional and also yeah. very clear-eyed in your judging and very exactly. demanding. Yeah. Yeah. Those are not mutually exclusive um well our next show is not reality it is a very different genre here we've got on hbo the third day which is this is the first episode and i believe this is uh is this a uk show that they're bringing over yes so this is a co-production between a bunch of different uh english um and uk studios um that originally is airing on sky atlantic over um over in the United Kingdom and is on HBO here in the states. Um discussing the show's weird. Um mm-hmm. it's a mini series that's split between three different parts. The first part is Summer. Um it has three episodes that focus on Jude Law. The third part is called Winter and focuses on Naomi Harris. But the second part, Autumn, <laughs> is going to be, presumably, depending on if this is still happening, um, is a one-off live event in London that will be, is described as an immersive theater event. (laughs) I I feel like they already filmed it. Yeah, I don't, it's, but it's supposed to be a live segment. Um, So maybe they've already. Oh, I thought they meant that they recorded it live. But you mean yeah. live, live. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, is, I don't, I don't know. Um, it, it airs on October, th- it's slated to air October 3rd um, in the UK. I'm unclear when we're going to get it or if we're going to get it, but the show airs in like one continuous take. So maybe they've already shot it. Maybe I just need to like read up on it more. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just, it's a little weird. Um, but I'm intrigued by it from a transmedia sort of approach, depending on what this ends up being. Um, so here's the deal, at least with the first episode. Um, Jude Law plays a, um, fellow who ends up in this mysterious island off the English coast, following saving a teenager or pre-teenager from hanging herself in the forest where he's been 
mourning, it's implied. It's a little unclear. His backstory is slowly rolled out over the course of this episode, but then is revealed to not necessarily be everything that he's been telling us. Um, shifting, shifting narrative type of thing. Um, and what's happening on this island is some sort of mix of a music festival and a Celtic reappropriation of a cultural festival kind of deal. Um, based on the history of this island in particular that's called OC. Um, O-S-E-A. OC. Okay. Um, it has all the hallmarks of a creepy insular island that no one should stay at for any longer than they have to type of deal. So it's very much in the vein of like a Wicker Man or I presume a Midsummer because I have not watched Midsummer because I am a little pansy. Um, in terms of horror type stuff, um, Hereditary scared me so much I didn't sleep for three days, so I did not watch Midsummer, which is from the same director as Hereditary. Um, but it has that same kind of insular community is implied to be doing weird pagan esque culture tradition type deals um, kind of thing happening. Um, but the first episode relies really heavily on our familiarity with those kinds of narratives to create the creep factor of the episode, which I think is a failing um, because the show then juxtaposes that uneasiness of being trapped on this island because the tides make the causeway inaccessible to connect back to the mainland um, by car. You can swim if you want to, but you know, um, th- it gets juxtaposed against the more standard, like, kind of blood and gore. So Jude Law's character, Sam, stumbles across a vivisected squirrel with certain organs picked out and put on, like, little rocks around it. Lovely. Um, which is fine. Like, it's it all fits within, like, the confines of this particular narrative. Um, but then he stumbles into, like, this abandoned, like granary or something where there's just a ton of, like bones and viscera and just a lot of stuff that kind of culminates in this weird vision of him half covered in blood screaming in the granary. Um, So there's these weird shifts between what's happening in his head or what's happening in the actual like world around him um, that try to ramp up the horror in a gory way that doesn't really fit with the creepier vibe of things so there's a for me there's a weird disconnect between wanting to be creepy in that old town country way right and then wanting to do this horror gore kind of thing which those two things are of a piece traditionally but the ways in which it being deployed here is neither one ends up being as effective as they should be okay so it creates a weird disconnect in the first episode. Um, I'm unsure if I'm going to watch any more. I think Jude Law's really good um, in this, but he's also doing pretty standard Jude Law type of stuff. Um, Catherine Watterson shows up as another semi-outsider. She's someone who's come to the island a couple of times um, and is here, has written like a paper about, or like a dissertation or a thesis about some of the traditions that they're co-opting, but she's been to the island a few times. She knows people here and they know her. So she's a semi-outsider, but she's not as much of an outsider as Sam is. Um, 
So there's a couple of things happening there as well that create an illusion of safety that we both, that we as an audience know are exactly about our illusions. Um, the standout is um, Patty um, Considine, who has been in a bunch of like Edgar Wright stuff, but also like plenty of other British independent films. Um, he's fabulous as Mr. Martin, who's the local innkeeper in Tavern, but he's a very aw shucks type of um, character. And he nails that whole semi-evasive, invasive, oversharer, small town shopkeeper type that is very, again, part of this narrative. And he hits it really well. Um, he's arguably the best, weirdest thing about the show. And I really, really like it. Um so we'll see. Um, I'm worried that it's going to get like too creepy or weird or uh, horror weird for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll see. I'm just so interested in Autumn that I'm probably going to keep up with it at least through to see what this theatrical event thing is because I'm just so compelled by the concept. Um, but yeah, I don't know that this is something for... I think horror fans will find the first episode kind of boring um whereas non-horror fans will also find it boring but for different reasons because it's a lot of setup um in terms of getting you to a point where they want to be at the end by the end of the episode um and as a drama some of that stuff isn't particularly compelling um and some of that stuff can also just feel really contrived because the phone lines are going down because they're being upgraded for the festival that's going to start but they're going to be down all weekend because the work needs to be done and the workers don't work on the weekends etc 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 um so it's there's a lot of like inelegant lines that all make sense within a genre so i just the first episode i don't think hits that balance of accessibility and but also being something that horror aficionados are going to be really into it sounds like so far i want to read a write-up about it but not Mm -hmm. watch it is yes where i'm at and i think that's an accurate way of thinking about it okay uh which takes me just swimmingly over to departure uh which premiered on peacock there are six episodes in the first season It, it was renewed for a second season um I assume not on Peacock, but on the original, you know, channels, um, network, uh, in, in like just like a week or or so ago. But, uh, this is a British and Canadian suspense drama, um, about a plane that disappears over the uh, Atlantic. And for some reason, which there's not a good reason, I assumed that meant it was like a time travel or sci-fi or something. No, it's not. It's just like, was there espionage? What, what, how did the plane go down? We found a survivor. How could that be? You know, all of this, like, why was their plane, you know, acting strangely? And oh, wouldn't you just, I'm sure it'll shock you, Noel, that like this uh, company behind this new type of plane is, has a massive order out. And if there's anything wrong with the plane, it'll bankrupt the company and all this different stuff. Um, the, the cast is really, entertaining to me because it's a blend of big names and then all your Canadian faves. Um, so it's Archie Punjabi and Christopher Plummer and Claire Forlani are three of the leads. And then there's Chris Holden Reed, you know, the, the love interest from Lost Lost Girl. And okay. there's Christian Brune, 
in a smaller role, obviously from Orphan Black. And there's there's Peter Mensa, who I know best, of course, from Spartacus. So it's like this really straight. Oh, Doug um, Ray Scott's in this yeah, too. Doug Ray Scott's Jesus. in this. Yeah. So it's just such a weird like blend yeah. of of people. And uh, so that is that was interesting. But I just like. I, w- I got a- about an episode and a half in, and I was like, oh, it's just going to be like, oh, and this person has ties to a terror cell, and this person is blah, 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 and this per- and there's an annoying kid, t- you know, like, teenage, like, 18-year-old kid of uh, Archie Punjabi, who's the stepson, and the the husband is, you know, the kid's dad has, has died, like, a year ago, and she's uh, the person who's supposed to assess crashes and find missing planes and stuff and you know there's all this you know secrecy going on and Claire Falani works with MI5 and you know all of these different things and I just after I like I want to know what happens but I don't want to give this show six hours of my life um and the trouble is that I can't find write-ups about it so if I want to find out what happens I might have to watch some of it some more of it like it's not terrible or anything it's just there are better uses of my time like continuing yeah. my rewatch of elementary I'm in like a season and a half into rewatching elementary I started like last week uh but I would much rather watch more elementary or start over on the good wife then watch is that more a thing that you're, you're considering doing because no i do oh, not okay. have the time if i start it it'll be bad uh i but i, I recently sprung for the the I, I upgraded to the ad-free version of hulu and that okay. has really increased my hulu watching including elementary um so which is why i'm doing that one right now if if uh the good wife was on hulu that would be a different conversation it's on prime um, don't say that. I don't want to know that. That's not helpful. You're not <laughs> helping. Anyways, point being, so I may jump. Uh, uh, oh, and Sasha Ruiz, I almost forgot, um, you know, who I remember from Capricorn and Grimm, um, is on this as well as like a uh, like a Russian oligarch CEO of stuff. Um, anyways, so I, I might jump and watch the last episode. Like there isn't even like a blurb on Wikipedia about the last episode of the season. And it because it's been renewed. You know, there's other stuff that I'm sure will be happening, but I care. I'm curious enough to want to know, like, what was the conspiracy? Um, but it's not different. I, I don't get the sense that it is different or interesting enough that I need to watch the journey of how they got there. So that is Departure. I wanted to like it a lot more than I did. And um, like they're doing th- things like, you know, the the lab says it'll be two days for the DNA. And then Archie Pachabi makes a face like, but I told them, you know, I, I pushed them and they said they can have it to you by the end of the day. I'm like, that's not how science works. Tests just take a certain amount of time. They don't take less time. Like, it doesn't take less time to run the mask spectrom- mass spectrometer because, like, you really want to know what happened. Like, that's not, that's not how it works. So there's a bunch of stuff like that, or like um, combing through social media and you find it, like like this, just not how any of this works, and um, and so that because they're pushing on those kind of beats so often, um, or just not in the right way, there there isn't enough hand waving reason that we can buy you know i i'll I'll watch a different team do this like i'll I'll put on limitless right if i want this and then at least i can hand wave at like magic brain pill for why they're you know making some of these jumps and leaps they're making so um yeah i just 
I, I'm curious. So congratulations to them. I am curious of what happened and how and all of that, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna watch six hours of this. Like you got, you got to do, you got to do more. I mean, and you have Archie Punjabi and you have Christopher Plummer and you have uh, Claire Forlani and you have a bunch of other people that I really enjoy um, popping up in these smaller roles. So I want to be on board. If there was more Christian Brune in the first two episodes, that would help. He literally has one line in the first two episodes. So I assume there must be more coming for that character. But um, but uh, then I would probably watch more of it. But like when Ruiz showed up and I was like, oh, you're doing that character. I'm not interested in that character. You'll do a good job with that character because you're a talented actor, but I don't, there's, there's not enough there, there. So this is my review of Departure. Eh, You don't need, you you don't need to watch something else. I'm actually more curious about what happened in Manifest, a show I have no interest in returning to than I am in, you know, and obviously the, the, the strange, mysterious plane crash show that I'm infinitely more interested in is our Dear Departed um, with Alison Tolman. Uh, that one is the by far more interesting than anything we get in this. So, yeah, that's Departures. Uh, departure, not Departures. Very different. Um, our last show is Lovecraft Country, which I unfortunately did not get to watch because I got behind on my viewing and went, oh, I still have four and a half hours of, of Julian the Phantoms to watch. I need to watch that first and haven't gotten to Lovecraft Country yet. But this episode uh, got pretty strong uh, buzz, at least initially. Um, as the last one that was sent out to screen, uh, like with the screeners to critics ahead of time, this is Strange Case, the Ruby episode. Uh, what did you think? So, I don't, I, I don't know what to do with this episode in a lot of ways. Um, Strange Case is a reference to Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde because that's the full title of the uh, Stevenson story is the Strange Case of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. Oh, and. I know what the thing is, so you don't don't hold back on. You're okay. not gonna spoil me. Yeah. Okay. Um. So there's a lot of like shifting identity issues within this episode. Um. What ends up happening? What the instigating for the episode is that Ruby, after her night with um William William William, um, wakes up as a white woman and suddenly is able to enjoy the privileges they're in. And it turns out that, like, there's a little potion that she can drink that turns her into a white woman. Um, And specifically, it's the white woman who controlled the dogs up in Artem. It's the same actor, um, I think. Pretty sure it's that woman. Anyway. um, And in exchange, all she has to do is, like, kind of do this weird thing with the um, head of the police at the lodge thing, which reveals a bunch of weird stuff, including a guy being tortured in a closet. And the fact that the sheriff cop guy has like a skin vest of like a black person on his chest. It's weird. And is completely yeah. unexplained within the context of the episode. Um, but the episode leans into the body horror of this. Um, whenever Ruby begins to, have to shift back to her actual skin, her actual identity, the skin just sloughs off. Um, it's very bloody. It's very grotesque. Um, it's it's not... It's decay without the decay, basically. Um, it's very gory. It's very bloody. Um, and it's very intense to watch because they make you watch it a couple of times. Um, so... 
that's all fine. Um, she uses her identity to get that job at that department store um, and basically becomes assistant manager on the spot. Um, but through various things that happen, including the fact that I don't want to get into it. There's just a weird sense of it's really about the ending, Kate, in mm-hmm. which um, the manager of the store attempts to sexually assault the other black employee. Uh, I say the other black employee, but technically the only black employee at the sh- at the um, store. Um, after they all, they being all the white patrons, convince her to take her to the bar that we've seen a couple of times um, over in the south side. Um, and she's able to get away, but Ruby spies this and takes revenge against the guy by, like, initially roping him into some, like, um, low-key bondage sex in the office, but then begins to beat him up and then rapes him with a stiletto while her skin is sloughing off. Um, Yeah, exactly. Listeners, Kate's making a concerned face. Um, And there's a lot of, like, weird stuff that's happening in this that is very messy and very complicated in terms of what we're supposed to be interpreting, how we're supposed to be feeling about the sequence, because, like... Yeah, no, the horrors of whiteness have done all sorts of things to black people that then can get perpetuated within this system. And you see that play out within Ruby's actions, I think. But then baked into that is the whole, the homophobia of anal penetration as a punishment, um, which also makes the whole thing messy and complicated by the subplot of Montrose finally coming to seeming to come to terms with his own homosexuality within this episode, um, wherein he reveals that he killed, he took care of Yahima Mm -hmm. to, um, Letty and Atticus, um, which results in Atticus almost beating him to death. Um, he goes to his lover's apartment where he has really, has rough-ish sex with him without speaking, but then goes to this drag club with him where he kind of comes to a realization of, I've been denying myself, this is my community. Um, And it's a really beautiful moment. It's the best part in the episode, and it's arguably one of the best parts in the whole series of him coming to this realization in this drag club. Um, It also features uh, Shangela and Monet Exchange in it, um, both very delightfully. so I was really glad to see both of them in this mm-hmm. getting Shangela getting even more HBO money and mm-hmm. Monet Exchange getting some HBO money. Mm-hmm. Um, but that whole sequence I think is really lovely and really great. But then you juxtapose it to the stiletto rape and you go, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to take away from any of this. And what's the ideology that the episode is expressing basically. Um, so it's really it's a really complicated episode that I don't like, um, that I have no desire to rewatch again, and continues to make me feel really uneasy about what the show wants to say or do. Um, the Yahima stuff was bad enough last week that I feel like some of this speaks to larger like issues that both feel baked into horror and baked into Lovecraft specifically, which is something I voiced a concern about way back when this show started five weeks ago, um, because you can't really extricate a lot of that stuff, and it turns out you can't. And 
I don't know that the show's grappling with those questions of how well this works when you're tapping into those impulses when you're doing this kind of a narrative. Um, so I don't know quite what to do with it. Um, it's messy. It's complicated. I've like, I acknowledge that some of what I'm saying is informed by um, stuff on triplets re- uh, recaps over at the vulture. Um, I think that those recaps are really, really good. I read them immediately after I watch the episode, which I shouldn't do, but I also don't want to wait a week to read yeah. them um, because they're really good. And I really like what triplets, what triplet writes about the show. I think it was really good. Um, so I'd encourage listeners to go read those provided you have the, <laughs> the NY mag page views available to you. I'm about out, which makes me very upset. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't have the money to pay for anything. So <laughs> I think that there's, it's just a weird show that I'm not quite sure. I think episode six, we're at the halfway point is going to be like the make or break episode for me and whether or not I'm going to keep going with the show because I don't feel compelled by anything right now, apart from some of the performances are obviously really, really great. Um, but the narrative is starting to really kind of have lots of problems for me that I'm not able to get past. Um, and that's kind of frustrating. Um, and there's some other stuff happening in this episode with Tick as he tries to decipher the language of Adam. And um, Letty's like, this is bad. This is evil. This is corrupting. And it's just like, yes, it is, because this is a Lovecraft narrative. And dealing with those kinds of forces always corrupts people. Um, that's the whole point of it. Um, but he ends up making a call to, um, Korea and the next episode based on the trailer takes place as a flashback within Korea. Um, and again, I'll, I'm really worried about horror and othering within that narrative, um, just based on what's been going on, especially over the past two weeks on Lovecraft Country. So it's probably going to be a make or break for me. Yeah. Understandable. And, uh, yeah, that is... Like when you're dealing with topics like this and you're dealing with this kind of intense imagery, storytelling and narratives, like just like thematics, right? Yeah. You want to feel like you trust the hands you're in and the the handling of the previous episode, Nihima, really shook my trust in the, the showrunners and yeah. so it sounds like that is similar experience for you and also then just that's heightened with this episode this week's episode and so yeah i don't know that i'm gonna keep watching right, right. so I, I will watch this episode um and i mean i'm very glad to be warned yes what's coming i'm very glad to not have watched it like late on sunday night after a very long day don't do that um, yeah uh <laughs> And to be able to space it out with whatever's coming next. But yeah, like, from what you're saying, and also the flags we had in the previous episode, the fact that the next episode is the Korea flashback is... And, like, the little bits we know about that already is not exciting for me. So we will see. Yeah. Uh, But what Um, wins your week in TV? Yeah. Um, That's a great question. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I guess... Pottery Throwdown? I didn't watch a lot of stuff I actually, like, really liked this week. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, Throwdown, I guess, wins my week in TV. Yeah. yeah. 
Elementary yeah. wins my week in TV. <laughs> the end of elementary. Like, it's just so fun to rewatch and know that I can, like, because I know they don't misstep my, like, there's some things about season one of elementary that are not great. Like the, the way too much, the way too high of prominence of like the, the perpetrators and the violence against the people who end up as the bodies, uh, the, the victims on the show. Um, like, so there, there's some flourishes like that in the first season that are not great, but Knowing that they never try to hook up Joan and Sherlock, knowing like how like some of the choices that the the show is going to make, and that I you know, I know that the showrunners, for the most part, as far as I'm concerned, made the right choices at each fork, right, and and their priorities and what they w- wanted to say about the character and about you know about these um, this property and everything makes it so much easier to just relax into that familiar rhythm of like the Sherlock Holmes character and my favorite interpretation of the character and my favorite interpretation of, of Watson and, and these other, these other beats while still having the same, you know, your fave, all your, all the cop shows are problematic, you know, elements. Absolutely. That's still absolutely there. Um, it, there's just, uh, just a, a, a fun and an energy to this particular take on Sherlock Holmes that I have really enjoyed revisiting. So Yeah. Also, the vow, but I didn't like this episode of the vow as much as the other ones. And yeah, you know, you know there are other things that I watched, but yeah, I'm giving it to elementary. Uh, <laughs> now we'll take a break, listen to a trailer, and come back to talk about Julie and the Phantoms. We'll be right back after this. We have one last performance, Julie. since mom died everyone's been waiting for me to snap i can't do this anymore i'm so sorry mom
that was a trailer for season one of Julie and the Phantoms, uh, which is a Netflix series that uh, has not yet been renewed for a season two, to my knowledge, but I, I hope is personally. I'm curious how you how you feel about it. It's about a young woman who is in high school, Julie, who uh, winds up summoning ish three ghosts who died as 17 year olds in a band that were about to break through, maybe um, from eating hot dogs. Eating bad street dogs. Where where was that concert? Was it at the Orpheum? Because I don't remember. Because they never mention. They it never again. mention <laughs> the Orpheum and how all the greats go through the Orpheum. Um, this is from Danny Ortega, who people will know from High School Musical, the director of High School Musical. Um, every episode, it like the premiere is like almost 40 minutes, but then the episodes are about a half an hour each. Every episode has at least one, if not two musical numbers and original songs. Um, it gets repetitive. So don't, don't binge it unless you're really digging it. Cause there's the, just the structure of Julie has to start singing. And what we re- realize, you know, by the second episode is that the band, their ghosts, no one else can see them except for her. But when they're performing, everyone, they, they appear and everyone can see them. And so that they can be visible and interact and, all of this great fun stuff um, when they are making music. So they connect over music. She's recovering from and dealing with the, 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 the loss of her mother uh, who was involved in the music world. Um, and who I think we're supposed to infer um, met the, the band was like running the show for the band um, right before they died. And, um, and that's, and so that's why she has their CD, which when, um, when Julie plays the CD, that's what pops them up. It's 25 years later and they've missed 25 years, um, you know, in the, in the void or whatever, in a dark room. I was crying in a void for 25 years is one of the single best line deliveries I've heard all year. Anyway, continue. It's very goofy. It's very (laughs) silly. Um, the, of the band, one of the band is Jeremy Shada. That's Reggie. Who's the, who's the very dumb bass player, uh, who people, No, as the voice of Finn from Adventure Time, um, and the 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 lead singer and 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 artiste like the the songwriter love interest type, um, who just says music music a lot. Um, uh, it's it's such a particular like how are you chewing the word music? Like how how did you? There's nothing chewy about those letters how did you congratulations i don't uh, i don't know kate how is there anything chewy about the word camera camera you are you are uh generonian is, is how you find a way um but um anyways so it's it's fun it's cheesy uh it, it it's it's ridiculous but i did enjoy it and it was it got repetitive because i binged it but i think if i had spaced it out over even just a few days the nine episodes like two to three episodes a day, I would have uh, been rather charmed by it. And the most important thing, they can't all act all that great, but they can all sing well enough. And uh, and I had fun. So, and also Julian the Phantoms is a very good name for a band. I'm very on yes. board with it. Uh, so, and much better than, was it Sunset Curve or whatever they were? Sunset initial? Curve, yes. Which I think is a great name, but yeah, no. Julian Phantoms is a very good name. Yeah. Phantoms. Uh, what, what did you think about this one? So I agree with you that it is something that if you watch too much of it all at once, it gets really repetitive. Um, Part of that just comes down to the fact that every episode ends with the same sort of, wait, where are they sort of cliffhanger um, that just doesn't add anything to the narrative excitement of the show. Um, 
even if the show I also appreciate is really honest about those cliffhangers, sometimes not working out the best way, um, which I, which is something I appreciate. Um, this is a, as you said, really goofy, more often than not really charming uh, family show um, that is very firmly in a Disney Nickelodeon vein of live action programming. Um, more so Nickelodeon, I think, in part because it's not multicam and most of Disney's um, family programming is multicam. This is a single cam setup. Um, but everything's like perfectly lit in a very flat sort of way for the most part. Um, the emotional stuff isn't too emotional. It's like just emotional enough. <laughs> um, but it's also just really goofy in some places. It's also just very cost cutting in other places. Um, one number in particular is just really weirdly staged because they clearly either were in a different location for it than they were when they shot in that same location earlier, or they didn't have any money for extras. Um, (laughs) you know which scene I'm talking about. Um, so I think that, but I do think that there's a lot of good stuff in here, and I think it's a good step for Netflix's, like, live action family programming. It is not the Babysitter's Club. Um... (laughs) But it is still fun and charming. And I think that there's a lot of, like, fun little things in it. Um, But on the whole, it does get really repetitive, I think, really quickly. Um, But it's still still good. Um, So where do you kind of want to, like, dig around first a little bit? Um, Like, do you want to start with the band members? Do you want to start with Julie herself? I feel like we uh, should start with Julie and okay. uh, and her brother uh, Carlos and their dad and how adorable uh, right, that yeah. the dad is uh, is Ray and just how charming they all are and how the how much I appreciate that the show wastes almost no time with him not approving of her music or wanting her to to not follow music or these different things like. They just go, they just start from a premise of supportive dad works in the entertainment industry because he, he's a director of some sort um, or just works with cameras of some, some sort and uh, like, and is trying to help his family through a tough time, whatever way that makes the most sense for them. And I really appreciate that if we're going to get a, you need to quit the band or dad doesn't, dad doesn't get me, that's going to not happen at least in season one. Right. Um, yeah, no. Um, uh, d- the dad Ray is played by um Carlos Ponce, who I remember from Cristela. Gosh, remember Cristela? Mm-hmm. Um, God, I love Cristela. Anyway, um, and he was great in Cristela, and he's equally very good here. The right amount of kind of harried parent, but also like deeply supportive parent, and just the right amount of like vaguely goofy. Mm-hmm. Um, like hits all those notes and balances really well, and he's really well written too. Like they give him just enough room to kind of do a lot of stuff with Ray that I think other shows would kind of keep him pegged too hard to a particular tone, and he's not pegged in this, which I really really appreciate. Um, so he's really great. Carlos, uh, who's the um, little brother, is just silly and delightful and just. Really, I what I appreciate about Carlos more than anything is Carlos appreciates a good French dip. <laughs> um, I don't like French dip because I don't eat red meat, but I like riffs on French dips. I love a good riff on a French dip with a different protein. I'm very happy because I like dipping 
sandwiches into into sauce and making a soggy sandwich that's delicious um so those two are great but i really like madison ray as as julie she can she's go a little 16 she's 16 she's a little broad in her acting but i think that she hits generally things that i want her to hit with this kind of a character but she what ultimately matters is that she can sing really well at least to my ear um and that's that's ultimately what matters a lot more in this show than necessarily that she's a good actor and i think she's an okay actor she has plenty of room to grow but girl can sing um so that's that is what matters and that that carries me through a lot yeah, well, it, it, I mentioned that she's 16, and also Jada Marie, who plays Flynn, is 15, because mm-hmm. it really, it makes such a difference. The band, yeah. the band uh, range from 20 to 23 in their age, and you can really feel that difference. Yes. It's, it yes. really did. And they're supposed to be a couple years older than, than her, yeah. but, but still, like, she's like a sophomore or something. And they're supposed to be, like, either having dropped out of uh, high school or, like just out of high school kind of age. Um, and like, it makes such a difference when they actually do feel like teenagers because yes. they are, they look yes. like, te- like the, even this, the way their costumes, the way they hold themselves, the way that like these characters act, like as someone who interacts with teenagers all the time, this is what, te- this is much more what teenagers feel like with just a Disney sheen, like Disney mm-hmm. TV sheen over them, but still, uh, as compared to almost every teenaged character played by a twenty-something that you see on anything, um, so so yeah, it 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 makes a big difference. And yes, she can sing. Yeah, it, it it's um she can really sing, but it it's very they're having her do one thing a lot. Yes. So yes. hopefully that'll grow and develop uh, over the course of the, you know, if, if it gets renewed in future seasons. But she she does what they ask of her really well. The songs are written to suit her very mm-hmm. much. And um, they they have, again, a really appropriate energy for what they're going for. She's at this, like, arts school. Um, so they have dance class instead of a gym. And they, you know, they have um, performances all the time. And it's a very industry kind of thing. But it feels more it, it feels right for this character and like the kind of thing that makes sense for her to be experiencing and her to be like her yeah i don't know what the other kids who aren't like what are the the sports people who are there what are they doing why are they at the, they should not be at that school i mean I, I my thing about this school more than anything is the fact that um that there's carrie who has her own Katy Perry, early Katy Perry ask pop idol group called what is it? Is Dirty it, um, Candy. Dirty Candy. And everyone at the school is okay with this. And it's just really weird to me. <laughs> well, okay, this is not weird to me. Okay. Uh, for this sort of narrative specifically. But right. also, for this narrative, it works, but it's just still. But also because while everybody is up in arms about cuties on Netflix, some of us remember dance moms. Like yeah. some of us, like when I, when, wow, oh God, how many years ago was it now? Like I was, I think I was still in college at the time. We might, for my grandparents, like 50th wedding anniversary, uh, they took us all down to Branson and we went to see like uh, some shows and stuff. And one of the shows had like a teenage dance group 
before, like as an opening act kind of a thing. And they were wearing clothes that were way too tight because it was like, it was clearly like a mostly younger group, but then some of the people had aged up and they had, they were still all doing the same choreography and wearing Mm -hmm. the same outfits and everything. It was like, Mm -hmm. this is not age appropriate. This is creepy. Why are they? Okay. No one is reacting. It's just, we are the only ones who think this is strange and far too sexual for this age of people. Okay. Okay. So like for me, like that's, it doesn't feel shocking or surprising to me because okay. I've seen it before <laughs> all right. and and nobody seemed to be reacting, which is why I find all the hubbub around cuties particularly um, hypocritical because, yeah, that's only when it's convenient. Um, and uh, I haven't seen the film. I can't comment on the actual film, uh, but yeah, it's gross when you ha- when you're hypersexualizing tweens, right? We shouldn't do it, and we shouldn't do it on Disney Channel, and we shouldn't do it on Dance Moms, and we shouldn't do it in all parts of our culture, not just in the one that people have decided uh, is scary to them. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Sorry, I didn't mean to get too deflected onto that other thing there, but but yeah, it it, it is. Th- it is, uh, I'm, I guess I'm just not surprised because of the kind of the stuff that I've seen dance troops do, but yeah, it seems like that shouldn't be happening. Right. And then it is in yeah. high school yeah. gyms everywhere. Weird. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's Julie and her school. Um, let's talk about Sunset Curve. Yeah. Um, we have Alex, uh, Luke and Reggie. We've mentioned Reggie already, who's played by Jeremy Shada. And I think this is the first time I've seen him in a live action thing. Um, He's fine. Um, I think I think he's good at what they're asking him to do. I don't yes. know how much more he can do, but yeah. he's doing. I he's, think he's doing this thing pretty well. Yeah, he's doing a very good stupid, um, and it works very well. Um, so Charlie Glepsey plays Luke, who's the lead singer and primary songwriter. It seems um, he is also okay, both like acting um, and like the character is, but. Um, we'll get into something I appreciate about the group overall as a minute. Um, but I think that there's just storyline elements of like, I'm attracted to a ghost. I'm attracted to a human that sure. Okay. I mean, I was fine with it with, uh, Demi Moore and Patrick Swayze. So I guess I'm okay with it here. Um, but it just, it, it's still a little silly. Um, <laughs> yeah. Though I do really like the, oh, girls, right? Yep. Right. No. Yeah. Which no. takes us to our drummer. <laughs> <laughs> and Alex, who's the drummer, who's played by um, Owen Patrick Joyner, who is the best thing on the show. Like, hi, like, I really, I really like Alex a lot. I think the character's great. But I really, really like everything Joyner does across these episodes. I think he's really, he's got the best timing for basically everything that they want, I think, from everyone. Uh, which makes sense, because he's playing the drummer. But I think that there's also plenty of other stuff that he just pulls focus for me the entire time and the ways in which that they don't make his, they don't make Alex's sexuality like a, the defining trait of who he is. Um, So much so that there's also like plenty of like vague homoeroticness between all three of them down to Luke being like, I have stage chemistry with everyone. And he just totally sucks in Reggie in that moment of just like a hard stare in which Reggie goes internally, I think goes, 
I think I need to reevaluate some things about myself. Um, <laughs> that's just really delightful. And it's also one of the best bits that Jeremy Shada does in the whole whole show. So I end up really liking all three of them like as a group. But for me, Alex is like the big standout and Joyner is like the guy who I'm like, I want to keep an eye on mm-hmm. from everyone else in the show. Yeah. And, and Willie, like just so much chemistry with Alex and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and Willie, I'm really, you're rooting for them right away. Very charming. Yeah. Um, w- any thoughts on our, our villain of the piece, like just deliciously over the top from the moment you meet him in his cape and top hat. Yes. <laughs> so, um, listeners, um, Cheyenne Jackson appears in what, like three, four episodes of the show total. Yeah, as a ghost magician who died in, like, the 20s or 30s and runs a nightclub where humans get the opportunity to see people for reasons that... To see ghosts for reasons that are... And by ways in which are completely unexplained. I assume that they all get killed afterwards, but that's not what happens. (laughs) Um, But he's just chewing everything in sight and it's delightful (laughs) (laughs) um they also give him like two of the big like show-stopping numbers um and both of them are one of them is really really good the other one is more of a reprise um that is less good it's the aforementioned they maybe shot this in a different location slash didn't have money for extras and it's really claustrophobic and weird and it's not nearly as good. Yeah. Um, but he's so good that it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Um, how did you feel about um, Caleb Covington, which is also just such a ridiculous magician name? <laughs> the, the It's a, a testament to their tone, their ability mm-hmm. to tone that um, I wasn't, Legend of Korra style going, obviously he's evil. What's wrong with you people? Like, because yes. they, they do sell the naivete of the band well enough that, um, yeah. And also just when the food shows up, I was like, yeah, I believe it. Uh, There's the supposed shows... to be 17. Yeah, that that could distract them for three hours. This show has so much old pizza for to make these actors eat such old pizza. Yes. It's so old. Anyway, go on. Um, so, so yeah, it, it is fun. Um, th- I think there's some pacing issues in the season. Yes. It, it takes too long to get to some of these beats. The um, like They're getting to the end, and you're like, okay, I see. I can see how they're going to wrap everything up, but then they just don't wrap things up. Um, yeah. So I'm actually intrigued what a second season is going to mean for, uh, well, I'll just say um, Bobby and, uh, and some of these other threads around like you it's now it like it's 2020 um you you can only say they're holograms for so long which is the biggest sticking point of the entire premise is any agent or producer that they end up signing with and they skate around it in season one just Mm -hmm. fine is immediately going to go so how does this algorithm work Mm-hmm. And they are not going to have an answer because they are children, <laughs> and also because they're because it's, it's ghosts. It's and, ghosts, and it's it's ghost drums and ghost guitar and ghost like risers and everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, so and ghost lights too, like like all like all of it. So it does like they're gonna have to get the agent on board 
with it. I like I like the pacing for that where by the end of the season you've got Flynn and Carlos on on board and no longer Carlos no longer trying to salt them. Um and, and so it'll be interesting to see if they do have a second season and how they pace out like the dad finding out and some of these other, you know, if they, the if they aunt do that. finding out. The aunt, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but that's gonna like, there's something interesting about them having a connection through music. Um, there, there being some sort of unfinished business that they think they understand, but then maybe they don't. And that being tied to expression and creativity and the ability to connect even across death, right. Through music and original music specifically that they new music that they're writing. Um, that is interesting. The show can dive into when they want to. And we're only going to suspend our disbelief so long. If you keep having the other thing that makes it difficult is that then every song has to have the structure of Julie starts by herself and yes. then they come in and appear. And so that just gets really repetitive. So, you know, well, can, can like, she just go up on stage and then like nod and, you know, somebody comes in, like Reggie comes in the bass. So he appears first before she sings or does she have to sing first? You know, like, yeah, they need to figure out their rules a little bit. Um, but I had fun. Yeah. The show's charming. It's fun. Uh, the big dance musical numbers, I think generally are all pretty solid. The mm-hmm. one in the school I think is all really fun. Um, it's just really kind of ridiculous, but I also like that the janitor gets to tap dance a little bit. Yeah. Um, I like so, that there's a combination of yes. diegetic and non-diegetic, right? Of, of like actually happening and not actually happening. Yes. Yeah. No, it's, it's a really solid mix. Um, I agree with you that there can be a little bit more variation in like songs for, especially for the band, but they need to figure all that out. So if you're looking for something to watch with your kids and, right now i think this is a really good new option um but for adults pace it out a bit this isn't as bingeable as like babysitter's club was um just let your kids watch it all at once and maybe if you want to watch it do like one episode a day or so um or every other day i think is a perfect way to watch this Mm um yeah have fun I know that I did, and some of you did too, so good times. Mm -hmm. Now you can go jam on your keyboard, and you can learn all the songs, see? Yeah! Uh, No, because I have to figure out what, like, a C key is. Like, I don't (laughs) understand any of this. I don't even know how to read music. This is going to be very much an experiment. It'll be an adventure, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. And and the last thing, the songs are good enough, too. When they're talking about, oh, this amazing song that my mom wrote, like, yeah, the songs are good enough for the hype, which I think, yeah. Shows like Glee never managed (laughs) So, uh, yeah, that that's an important element, too. So um, a few show notes here at the end of the episode. You can find a post for this episode over at theteleverse.org where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's TV. You can like our page on Facebook and start up a conversation there. You can email us at televerse at gmail.com. You can find uh, our M4A chaptered feed and our, MP3 un- and our MP3 unchaptered feed over on Apple Podcasts. You can leave us a rating review there. We'd appreciate it. It helps other people find the show. And you can also find us in Stitcher uh, where we have in our M4A feed. And we are both on Twitter. I am at the Televerse. And Noel, you are? At Noel RK. Thanks so much for a great discussion, Kate. Thanks, Noel. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Televerse.